Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Sun Spotlight. I'm so sorry for the inconvenience and having it on my main basic show, but unfortunately, we're having some technical problems with BTR here, trying to figure out how to sort out all three of my shows, so I apologize for any of the confusion there. Today, I'm very, very excited to be hosting one and the only Eric, and please apologize if I get this wrong, Risto, I believe it is. Documentary filmmaker, most recent project being Sit, Stay, Ride, the story of America's sidecar dogs. I'm extremely excited to have him on the show for various reasons. For one, we both share a similar kinship in that we have parallel careers. Second of all, I'm always fascinated to find out about the history of, of uh, filmmaking, etc. So um, this should be an absolutely wonderful show. I want to remind everybody before I forget, obviously, after this week, we only have two shows next week, which is going to be Monday and Tuesday. Then, of course, obviously, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day comes along. And this woman has decided that she's officially going to take off for the holiday week, just like everybody else out there. So for the week of uh, right after Christmas, we'll be off. We'll be returning back on January 2nd. First guest, of course, is going to be Lori Zaslow, which is the lady from Project Soulmates. I'm extremely excited to be hosting her. So without further ado, let's get Eric on the line and start our interview. Hi, Eric. Hi, Cindy. How are you? Oh, my God. I'm so excited to talk to you. I can't stand it. <laughs> I've just been very, very pumped up about this interview. Well, I, I appreciate the time. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. Oh, well, thank you. Not a problem at all, actually. Dana Dana is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, and she always brings me some of the best people. So, Dana Humphrey, hopefully you're listening to this and you can hear me. She's absolutely fabulous. I'm sure you know that. And, yeah, um, she is. She just, Everything she does, everything she touches, every person that she brings to my show is just so wonderful. And when I went and I researched you, I found out exactly why she wanted you to be on my show. So I want to kind of, I, I just, I, you're going to get, not, I mean, it's going to get crazy here. I have so many cool things to say about you. It's sickening. Um, but I wanted to kind of start off with this, this. I want to start with an obvious inquiry. Um, obviously, to the people that know you or who have researched you or looked at any of your work, you can see that you put your heart and your head into this documentary for a reason. Um, can you maybe pinpoint for us the significance that um, furry friends hold to you, meaning is there a reason, you know, some people pick dogs, some people pick cats? Why Why the dogs? Why the sidecar dogs? Well, you know, my wife and I have a couple of rescue dogs, and we've always adopted rescues as, as a practice. And we just love Captain mm-hmm. Godfrey so much. They're mm-hmm. such a huge part of our lives. And both of us have seen the number of shelter dogs that are out there that need homes. And, uh, you know, that, you know, the, we, we don't have a no kill world at this point and there are just mm-hmm. too many dogs that need homes. And so we, we have always felt like in the films that we produce, we like to try to make a difference in some way. You know, there's, there's just so many things that, that we can show people through films and, you know, we want to have fun at the same time, so we try to combine our, our real care for, you know, rescues and and, and dogs and, and all animals in general with something that we just really find fun, which is motorcycling and sidecars and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But, you know, you know, shelter dogs and, and dogs in general are just near and dear to our hearts. It's been a huge part of our lives um, since we were both little kids, and so that's that was really the start of it. How do we combine things that we really love and really care about and try to make some kind of difference mm-hmm. in the world while, while doing so? Gotcha. So I'm gathering then that your proverbial pound, as we would put it, in terms of your own household for now, you have just the two dogs, or have you uh, built onto that or anticipate building onto that in the future? Well, you know, we have two dogs now, and we just had our first baby. So we now have a seven-month-old and these two dogs. Oh, my God. Our household is kind of 
kind of full at this point, and, and the dogs uh, are absolutely a huge fan of our daughter, and she's already, you know, Aww. able to give them the business and uh, grab their ears and do all the kinds of stuff the kids love to do. So we have a pretty packed and pretty happy household right now. I think maybe if we end up with a larger place down the road, uh, we'll see uh, what happens. But right now we're uh, we're pretty happy uh, for some. I gotcha. So now she, with being seven months old, so there's no fear, no no nipping, there's been no issues whatsoever. That's kind of wild because she's just a baby. No. Fortunately, these dogs are absolutely the most mellow, gentle dogs you'll you'll find. They just are absolute wow. sweethearts. And both of both of whom, uh, you know, had some some issues when we got them. It's just like just like any shelter dogs. You're gonna you're gonna have a range of dogs because they've had a range of experiences. But with with right. love and patience, you know, any dog can be an absolutely fabulous, fabulous companion. And the same with these two dogs. They they both are just as gentle as they could be and and our little one has been around them since she was born. So that's you know, I, I love that she's just going to remember being raised around these around these sweet and gentle dogs and you know, that'll of course probably aim her life in the direction of being someone who wants to have dogs as well. Well, that's absolutely awesome. I note that you have enlisted a total, of course, of 15 dogs for the film. So I was sitting here thinking to myself, do you find that it's easier to tame people or pets as it relates to performance on camera? You know, W.C. Field said that he would do any movie as long as it didn't feature dogs or children. Because he oh felt like if 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 the dog or the child got the take right, that's the take they're going to use. And so I've always been a little wary of trying to work with work with dogs in a film. Uh, and, and this isn't a fictional film. It's not like where there was a script and the dog had to hit a cue. But you know, these dogs right. that, that we featured in the movie are, you know, they're sidecar dogs. They're really really well trained to do a certain certain couple of important things. Uh, to, to make it safe, and you know, people have to mm-hmm. just have patience and work with these dogs until it's it's appropriate to take them in the sidecar. And all of these dog owners were um, just so meticulous and careful and safety minded, and it, it, it okay. didn't be a problem at all. These dogs were all absolutely terrific. They they knew the they knew the drill. They were super excited to jump in the sidecars, and uh, as you'll see in the movie, it's. Most of the dogs are bouncing, you know, three feet off the ground when when it's time to go. <laughs> so we didn't really? have any problems at all. It was, it, I was honestly dreading it, thinking, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna fly across the country. We're gonna spend a bunch of money to go meet these people and spend some time with them and right. shoot, and then it's gonna be a nightmare." Never was was totally unfounded concern. So we got pretty lucky. It was ah. it all did work great. See, so I was right in my consensus and theory because I'm thinking to myself, I bet it's some people that are hard to work with because they got personalities, attitudes, they get tired, da 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 da. Whereas with a dog, sometimes an animal might be a little bit easier. Yeah, you know, it, it's true, it's true. But in our case with these people, uh, and and this is the, this is the honest truth, we okay. we used everybody in the movie that we that we interviewed, and the significance of that, you'll probably know, working in media, is that there's a large number of people who you put them on camera and they're just not comfortable or they're, you know, they're not, they don't have that sparkle. They're not, you know, right. not maybe as interesting as you think they would be. So when mm-hmm. we make films, we typically will count on editing out about half the people that we film just because it just, it's not a good fit. It's just not the right kind of, mm-hmm. they weren't comfortable or what have you. Every single one of these people was hands down terrific and so great on camera and so into what we were doing. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty unique hobby. And it's it's just 
it's it's an unusual thing that these folks do, and so they're of course super excited to talk about it. And mm-hmm. uh, we just found that every one of these people are just just great. Now this might seem like an ignorant question, but I'm told there is no ignorant question. But I'm talking about something I know nothing about <laughs> from the sidecar component. I know about bikers quite a bit, but the sidecar component. Call me crazy, but in all the Harleys and places I've traveled to, et cetera, and people I've met, the sidecar is kind of um, a novelty, if you will, really. I mean, I was wondering, how did you find all these people? Because let's get real, how many sidecars exist? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it, it's not an ignorant question at all. It's actually, it's it's dead on because the sidecars are such a tiny, tiny percentage of the motorcycling public. And mm-hmm. then those who take their dogs, we address this in the film, actually. We Those who take their dogs are, are a tiny fraction of those people. So we're talking a niche okay. within a niche. And it honestly was a challenge at first to find these people. We happened to find one guy who's uh, who's in the film. His name is Ned Deming, and we, we went and interviewed him while we were on a different project. And he was so great with that. Oh my gosh! The others are half as interesting and funny as this guy. We need to uh, we need to make a movie about this. But then we started to poke around on YouTube and try to find these people because we've seen them off and on throughout the years. You see somebody with a dog in a sidecar and you think, "Oh, that's so fun." But then, how do you find these people? And so it ended up being a, a networking sort of thing. Ned is a guy who's very involved with an online forum called ADV Rider Adventure Rider, and it's a huge forum of people who like to ride off-road or you know, long distances or ride right. to South America or, or what have you. And there's a sidecar section of that forum, and he's been around there forever. And so he pointed us in the direction of, of another few people. And then once the word kind of got out that we were making the film and we did a Kickstarter campaign, then we were just blooded with people who got sure. with us saying, hey, I've got a dog in a sidecar. And it got really right. easy after about three or four months, but at first it was, it was really a challenge to, to find these folks. I got it. Well, look at that. See, I was right on that. Because like I said, I mean, I've been to tons of different Harley events and functions, and I just, I love the sidecars, but you just don't see them. In fact, my son wanted to go on a sidecar, and I'm like, um, not quite sure where we're going to find that one. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah, a dying they're really, thing, so to speak. They're kind of a throwback to, you know, motorcycling in the teens and 20s and 30s. I mean, they were they were just initially a, a practical bit of transportation, you know, it was let's bolt right. something onto the motorcycle so we can have someone on the someone riding and someone on the you know, riding pillion behind the rider and then another you know, couple people on the sidecar. And you know, it's it is a small group of people and the other interesting element relating to the to motorcycling experience is that these people typically got a sidecar to take their dog along. So as you probably know, if you add a sidecar to a regular motorcycle it changes it from being this zippy, fun experience of leaning and and that that sort of sweeping and uh, right. you know just really uh, you know kind of a sporty feel to the ride to being a little more like a truck. I mean, you're not leaning at all. You're going on down the road with uh, it's an asymmetrical uh, ride at that point. Then, so it pulls you to one side when you when you start off, and it pulls you to the other side when you when you uh, slow down, and it just right. changes it. It really is kind of, for people who love the feeling of a motorcycle, it kind of is a sacrifice. But yet, these people are just delighted to be able to do it, to take their dog along. It's, you know, Aww. it's pretty interesting the lengths people will go to take their dog mm-hmm. with them. And it ends up being a pretty cool setup, as you'll see in the movie. I mean, there are some, a, a wide variety of sidecars made, and they're they're very, very cool looking. You betcha. 
Okay, I wanted to ask kind of an industry question for those of us that are on the outside at this particular point. Now, the powers that be, whomever they are that dictate, of course, filmmaking, um, do they enforce a hard line rule as far as um, filming of animals? Because I know I hear about that a lot about how there's just they're, they're so stringent about things. And I guess maybe just kind of pull us into that a little bit, you know, because obviously you're the big boss, you're doing the film. How hard are they on, on that sort of thing? You know, I don't know that there's an official um, rulemaking or lawmaking body involved. I know that if you see feature oh. films that feature animals, the right. American Humane Society a lot of times will send a monitor to the set to make sure that the animals are treated well and they're not put in danger. Okay. I know that that's an element with feature films. And, you know, if you go to the American Humane Society website, they have a whole section for filmmakers on, you know, how to go about right. this and how to have that line at the end of the film, no animals were harmed in the making of this film, monitored by the American Humane Society. But for documentaries, we haven't ever run into that. And we have just, we just sort of approached it as journalists and, you know, said, let's go see what these people do. Let's show up sure. and let's just watch. And that was one thing we were thinking about. It's like, are these are these people putting their dogs in danger? Is this is this uh, you know something we should be worried about? And in every single case, people were taking huge huge strides to make sure that their dog was safe. Most of the dogs are are harnessed in in a very particular way uh, with a breakaway clip in case they do get in, into a big um, you know sort of uh, accident of some kind. But people are very very cautious and very careful. And you know these are their best friends. They're they're going to put more effort into taking good care of them than they probably are themselves. Oh, goodness, yes. I would have so to agree we, with we that. So we didn't really, didn't really run into anything uh, relating to regulations. Hmm. That seems so odd to me because I'm like, and again, maybe I'm an idiot, but I'm like, okay, one of my favorite movies of all time, let's say The Godfather, for instance. Hello, there was a right. horse there. Now, granted, of course, you don't see, even you see the horse, et cetera. And I'm just like, even that, I'm like, how do they get away with that? You know what I mean? Because it, it looks so yeah. cruel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, okay. I I would assume it's special effects, but, you know, good question. I, I don't really know. And in this case, um, nobody nobody approached us saying, hey, you know, where's your permit <laughs> or anything like that. Oh, okay. I get um, it. And apparently it's it's completely legal to ride with your dog in all 50 states. Apparently there's no prohibition to it whatsoever. So um, I was going to ask that, that. For, yep. for what it's worth. Yeah. Gotcha. Wonderful. Now, um, to those that don't know, of course, the curator of this project is obviously both yourself and your wife, as you had mentioned. So tell us the truth. Your wife's probably going to hate this question, but I like to ask those questions that are out of the norm. To some people, 24-7, I want you to be truthful now, 24-7, is it daunting to a degree? And I, and I mean that on both sides of the fence, because you, of course, live together, you have a child together, you're filming together. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it is it daunting at times? Daunting to work together as as partners in in that way and well and meaning that well, you're kind of you're like stuck twenty four seven I don't mean that in a bad way but I mean throughout the course of this journey you're together literally almost all of the time and I, and I've talked to other partners where I've said hey do you ever just like walk up to your partner and like okay I need an afternoon off you know what I'm saying kind of like you're you're together oh, yeah, we, constantly yeah we do that we definitely do that um, I mean we take, <laughs> we take time away. Uh, you know, short bits here and there, but we we get along great. And honestly, this was our first film together that was just our our project. And we wanted to see how well we worked together. We'd worked together on on tons and tons of other films for other people, working in the same roles, but working for a client and having a very clear sort of mission with the film is different than making a creative work with somebody. You know, that's that's not always easy to do, but we were delighted with the fact that we 
we got along so well. We saw eye to eye on the project, and and uh, and that worked out well. You know, near the end of the filming, when Geneva was uh, six, seven months pregnant, she couldn't travel on the last few shoots. Oh, yeah. So I ended up doing okay. those, taking my dad along with me, and um, and Geneva then uh, worked on the editing. And so, you know, it, it, being as busy as we are, and off doing other things that are outside of our filmmaking work. We don't get tired of each other, fortunately. I think that's why we're a great uh, match. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, and then finally, I note that the length of the feature is 84 minutes, which I find amazing because me, I thought to myself, there's got to be at least enough material for two hours here. So my big question, <laughs> too, is how do you... Uh, seriously, I mean, how do you as the director determine the cuts? You know, we shot 50 hours of interviews. Whoa. And we... We transcribed. We got it all transcribed and uh, typed. Okay. You know, we had some folks type it in, into text, and we printed it out, and we put it in these huge binders. And I know that sounds really weird and kind of anti-technology, but if you think about trying to sit there and watch 50 hours of interviews, especially when you start getting engaged with the, you know, you see somebody talking, you're you're thinking about more than just what they're saying. You're looking at their expressions and all of that. So we find that typing, having it all typed out, so we can highlight it and look at it on paper you know, with sort of a, a clear eye uh, is the way to go. And so we, we spent several months getting going through all of that in a text form and not getting tired of seeing the interviews. And then we were able to go through and pull out just what we considered the really good stuff. And then we had six hours. We had a six-hour movie at our first, at our first cut. And cutting it down, okay. you're right, it's, it's hard because there are so many great things that people say. And... You know, it's a, it's always a tough decision, but in the end, we edited mm-hmm. it down and down and down until we had a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and then we, we let it uh, sit there for a while without watching it, and then you just start saying, well, what's repetitive? And what's, mm-hmm. the, what's the essence of what we want to communicate here, what these people are trying to communicate? And, and you know, you take a five-minute story and you turn it into 30 seconds, and it's uh, it's definitely tricky and it's hard to do because there's things that people say that you really want to include that maybe... Maybe they took a little too long to say it, or maybe it just sort of wandered off topic, and you just gotta you gotta be brutal with it. And it's it's a completely right. subjective thing. And and uh, we definitely could have had a two hour, three hour, four hour movie, but we felt that as far as what we were trying to do and keeping the audience interested and excited as we went along, that you know they wouldn't get bored and we'd, we'd come out with an eighty four minute film. Perfect. All right. Now before we keep hailing about how wonderful you are. I recently just happened to know something on that. It was posting on social media because I like to talk about how wonderful you are. But let's do a side note. Social media, I happened to come across something which advocated for the advancement of something they call the bug movie, uh, which is a current project of your brother's I saw. So I thought I'd give you your, uh, you know, your five minutes of fame here as far as your brother goes and feel free to chat that up. And then I was just curious if he was capable of capturing the funds to, um, to do the film. So he was. So my brother Damon uh, is a couple of years younger than I am, and he is also a documentary filmmaker. And he's he's made a, a couple of films, and uh, one the first one is called The Bus. It's the history of the Volkswagen camper van, and uh, it has done extremely well. He had it on the Documentary Channel a couple of years ago. It's been in a couple of really big film festivals, and uh, as far as the Volkswagen fans are concerned, it's sort of the you know, the the classic VW van movie. So now he's working on a film about the bug as a beetle. And uh, I had the pleasure of going down to Mexico with him here uh, probably nine months ago to, to see the, you know, tens of thousands of bugs that uh, 
that are down used as taxis in Mexico. And uh, he's been all over the world shooting this film, and he, he did a Kickstarter campaign wow. this this last spring and was successful. So that's uh, that's in the works. I think sometime in the next year we'll probably see that. But he, uh, he's really a great great guy, a great filmmaker. And, and if you're interested in BW bugs or buses or any of that culture, it's uh, busmovie.com is where you can find that stuff. And does uh, he travel with his wife and uh, do stuff with her too? <laughs> you know, from time to time, they've, they've been, uh, I think, went to Spain and went to a couple of film festivals oh. together, but they have four kids. And that is not oh. as easy when you're trying to make a movie to, to haul the brood right? around. So they do quite a bit of traveling, <laughs> but they, I think they try to keep that uh, keep that to the vacation, you know. And, uh, you know, they've been, they've traveled to some pretty cool places. They showed the, bug, the bus movie on a at a Volkswagen festival in Spain a couple of years ago. And Volkswagen, the, the Volkswagen company, uh, honored them by flying the entire family over there for, for a couple of day, uh, Volkswagen festival. So those, those kids, uh, got the, got a taste of Spain early on in their lives, which was pretty cool. You know, that was, they, they, they that was two years ago and they still talk about it like it was yesterday. Pretty fun. Oh, neat. Very, very neat. Awesome. See, kudos. See, we get to promote you and your brother all in one show. I love this for being so productive. <laughs> I, love, I love the internet. You, you can't, there's nowhere to hide on the internet, I'll tell you what. I know, right? And don't worry, because you're interviewing with me. So I'm pretty blunt, and I get all the good stuff out. So don't worry. We'll be no. embarrassing you before the interview is over. So that's okay. Um, now, in case any of you are wondering, Eric himself, of course, has been, um, in case no one knew this, you have both a love of motorcycles as well as motorcyclists, I should say. Um, your current chariot, of course, possesses a sidecar, as I saw. So maybe you could just enlighten us. I thought it would be neat for you to just kind of go through the barrage of bikes that you've owned, or have you only owned this one? You know, the way it worked with my family when I was a kid was that we always had a couple of old beater Japanese bikes around, uh, you know, stuff out of the oh. 70s and 80s and Honda 550s and things of that nature. Nothing uh, that when anyone would include as sexy or collectible. Uh, my uh, cousins always had motorcycles, so yeah, 80, in 1982, Yamaha Vision was the bike of choice, but it tended to be a, a bike that, you know, my brother and dad and I shared, or my dad had a, you know, at one point had a Goldwing. We had a '89 uh, Honda Saber, and that was a fast bike. Uh, and you know, my bike of choice for quite a long time now has been this uh, 1974 BMW R75/6, and I've kind of had a had okay. a love of the airhead BMW since I made a movie a couple of years ago that featured an old 1960. Uh, slash two with a sidecar, uh, and you know the the older vintage stuff where you you know you ride it for an hour and work on it for two hours. That's kind of been my my personal <laughs> preference. Really, in recent years, um, and sidecar bikes. You know, you know the fact you can ride them year round. You don't have to worry about tipping over on the snow in, in Montana where we live. You know, that's a, that's kind of a big thing. So um, sure. that's been you know. You know, the number of bikes I've owned is quite few, honestly. But um, motorcycles have been a part of my life for a long, long period of time. Gotcha. Now, with the half in Milwaukee, schedule, though, you're, you're probably oh. you're probably tied in with the Harley crowd, I'm guessing. Oh my God! Like you wouldn't believe it. Let me just tell you something. I walk around this house and I sulk pretty much like for the next four months because what happens is is that I try to encourage my Harley friends to take their bikes out now you know and then there's this thing called snow and they're like you're crazy we're not riding so then they force me to have to go to places like California Florida I love to ride um 
You know, I've never dated a Harley guy. How ironic. I'd love to be in the back of a motorcycle, but no Harley man will ask me out, et cetera, et cetera. I'm very single, blah, blah, blah. I was going to ask you about your brother being single, but a little late on that one. Um, no, in any case, I have a great number of Harley friends everywhere. But the problem is, you know, they're, they're in this weather, because I'm in the Midwest, I'm in Wisconsin. So what happens is, of course, we have that that chill and fall like we have right now for four months. So, it, you know, obviously it, it kind of yep. sucks. Yep. We have a lot of the Harley great stuff here, but unfortunately it's ironic that Harley is here. I've always said that I love that it's here, but maybe it should be in Florida or California because they ah. ride all year. <laughs> you know point. what I mean? They do. Right. They ride all year. I'm like, I cannot wait to go to Florida in January because I get to ride. You know what I'm talking about? Even if it's yep. just a day. Yep. Yep. You know, and that, and it's and it's contagious, and then I might just get my tattoo then. But that's a whole other story. Now, now you have me going off topic, darn it. Dana's going to yell at me. That's right. What are you doing on air? My show. Well, you know, um, yeah. one cool point about Harley is that the, the Harley Museum, this last July, before our mm-hmm. film was done, had found out that we were making this film. And even though you know there are out of you know 15 bikes in the film, there are two Harleys, mm-hmm. but. They showed the preview. They had a pet bike night at the Harley uh, Harley Museum back in July, and they featured the featured mm-hmm. the uh, kind of preview for the film. I thought it was very cool that they reached out to us and were you know not you right. know not brand elitist in any way. I mean, the, there are more BMWs Correct. and Urals in the in the film than Harleys, but they were just they were just so cool, and uh, I thought that was Thank really you. nice of them. Thank you. See, us Milwaukeeans, we're kind of cool people. Yeah. I've been, to your, I've been to your town. I I absolutely love <gasps> Milwaukee. I worked in uh, I wow. worked a couple of shoots out in Palmyra here about five years ago, and absolutely loved it. Oh, wow! Look at that. So he came to town, and he didn't call me because yeah. Oh, okay, man, you were off in Florida riding uh, riding motorcycles, uh, <laughs> riding that Harley, trying to find a <laughs> husband. Yeah, right. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, that's okay. I I was just going to ask you now because of the hassles of having a hectic schedule. And I don't mean just obviously the directing, et cetera. Obviously, you have a family now. Um, how hard is it for you to find time to ride at all? Well, tougher than I would like, honestly. This this past uh, seven months since my daughter was born, you know, we, we finished the film. We did our last shoot one week before, before uh, Valencia was born. And so we were on the way back from Seattle, and my wife thought she was going into labor in the middle of nowhere. And we get home, and fortunately it was a week later, but but we essentially edited the film over the first three or four months of our daughter's life. And so she was, you know, a lot of times sleeping in the editing room while we were right. were working. And so it made it it made it kind of a challenge. And uh, I actually had some mechanical issues over the course of the summer. And you know, while I was busy editing the film, I had a guy helping me uh, do some rebuilding on the uh, on the old Beamer. So. Uh, it is tough at this point. Uh, with sidecar, though, as I mentioned, you know, s- snow and ice doesn't actually pose that big of a problem for, you know, shorter rides and that kind of thing. And we have a group that rides, uh, does a New Year's Day ride every year. Uh, so that's coming up. I look forward to that. Uh, last oh, year cool. it was sunny and beautiful and dry. And we'll, past years it's been icy and snowy and crappy. So we'll see how it goes. But, you know, you get out, you get out as often as you can. And I, I am facing facts that as a new dad and a and a small business owner, you know, it's never going to be as much as maybe it was at one time in my life. But it's sure. fortunately my wife, uh, Geneva, is supportive. She's actually looking for a motorcycle of her own. And uh, sometime in the next uh, year or two, she'll probably find that bike. And then we'll, at that point, uh, probably our daughter will be old enough. We can get out together and do some do some short jaunts around Montana, which is just absolutely great riding country. 
Absolutely awesome. That's fabulous. Now, I have to ask, this is an extremely important question. I hope you have the right answer. Otherwise, I'm going to stop liking you right now. Are you or are you not a fan of SOA? Uh, Hesitation. Well, Here it comes. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you what. I think it's absolutely fabulous. Um, I think if I were the filmmaker behind it, I may have made some different creative choices, but that is not what your question is. I <laughs> absolutely love, you know, when I travel and I'm in a hotel room and I can punch that up right. on Netflix. I'm a binge watcher, so I can I really? I will uh, I will sit and watch you know forever. Um, I get you know that's the problem with being a filmmaker and an editor is it's a right. little hard to turn that part of the brain off. And <laughs> my bet. wife elbows me in the movies all the time. I'm like, what? Why? Why did they do that? Look, look at here's how they did that. Shut up. So exactly. I, if if I'm if that part of my brain isn't active and I'm watching Sons of okay. Anarchy, I'm I'm nothing but happy. Sometimes I think, hmm, if that were me. I maybe would have done this or that, but it's so well done. I mean, right. it's kind of a bummer that it's that it's coming to an end or at an end, and um, I hope that something else equally as good, you know, shows up because really there aren't there aren't shows right. of that quality very often. I was going to say, did you watch the finale? No, I haven't. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I'd like to oh, block you myself. Oh, out. I'm so I'm oh way behind. My God. Please don't spoil You're it. Cry. Don't spoil it. You're gonna cry. No, it I, I would <laughs> definitely not do that. but it's funny that you were talking about the creative choice in me because I of course as a writer, I, I'm I'm watching it and I'm like, you know, I don't know if I like that or did that make sense in the arc of the story and then I'm criticizing this and stuff. And I you know, this show that you're on right now, that's what I do. I interview the cast um of Sons of Anarchy, yep, past yep. members, current members. That's you so have amazing. to you walk a fine line of being politically correct, meaning I have to, in some ways I feel like I have to watch what I say about Kurt Sutter because they employed these people. So, of course, they take that very seriously. <laughs> they do. Yeah, yep. I mean, you get lynched. I can get lynched if I say the wrong thing. I'm like, I think people have heart attacks when I criticize. I'm like, I love the show to death. I interview his cast. I'm a supporter of his show. He's not paying me to yep. do that, by the way. Sponsors are. But yep. I'm like, if I, as a fan, you have a right to be critical. You have a right to criticize certain things. And, you know, there are sure. things that I don't necessarily agree with and as far as that goes and such, and I'm so honored, you know, to to know all those people. But I'm always absolutely. so excited when I when I get to hear about the SOA thing. I'm like, it's absolutely amazing, and now it's over. So I hope the bastard executioner works for him. That's his next project, and and um, ah. I hear, I hear, and it's funny you should say. I wonder if something else will come along. So now I get to turn the table for just a second, and I myself need to ask you a question because me. I'm about to embark on, and I can't decide whether I want to do it as a documentary or if I want to do it as a uh, as a series uh, and write a treatment on female bikers. So my question to you, because this will be my first delving, I'm working on a documentary now, but I haven't started filming it yet. I'm about to. Any tips that you could give to either me or else anybody else in earshot as far as to what you feel makes an effective and successful film? You're talking documentaries? I'm talking in general, whether it be a documentary, whether it be a series. What have you found to be the key to success for you so far that works? Well, you know, I have made two films that I essentially call my own. Both of them were co-directed. The, uh, a Sit-Stay mm-hmm. Ride, which we're talking about you know, today, the documentary. And right. then I made a film called The Best Bar in America, which is a narrative feature. Yep. I made that with my brother about five, six years ago. And it is a film involving motorcycles, old BMW motorcycle, the sidecar, and a guy riding across the western United States trying to write a guidebook to every bar that he can possibly right. find. So we wrote the script with the idea that if it doesn't succeed, we're going to go to a bunch of bars and ride motorcycles, and it'll be great. 
And, you know, neither of these films are perfect, and they were both made on very low budgets. But I think that in my world, what makes a good film is if the audience isn't thinking about the filmmaking. Just like we were talking about the Sons of Anarchy, I can turn off that part of my brain. I love it a lot more. If the audience is engrossed and they are emotionally involved with what's going on, whether it be a documentary or a, or a feature film, and it maybe brings to them something that they had never considered before or a perspective they've never considered, I think that makes a film a success. I mean, obviously, there's a the monetary side of things. And for us, that's getting easier and easier because of Amazon and iTunes and all these places. We can, we can sell our films without a distributor. But honestly, you know, in, in thinking about films that I'd like to make, I ask myself, has it been done before? What do I want to communicate? And do I have the, the skills? Do I have the cast? Do I have the subject matter to make it engrossing and make it uh, good enough that the audience isn't thinking about the budget, that they're not thinking about the, you know, how they made the film? You want the audience into the story. Is it right. storytelling that's effective and that's that's well done and that's the, as you know that's the crazy thing about movie making is it's that on one hand a very technical art and it's also a uh, you know just a a, a very um, literary medium it, it it involves so many different things and so to make a film on a, on a small budget like we do you know it's just taken years of experience to try to get to the point where it's sort of industry quality you know what I mean and and it's tricky I mean that's the thing you can see all these Hollywood huge budget films that are really not that great. And it shows you that I think, you know, money does not always have as big of an effect as you would expect it to. So oh, definitely. I'm not By sure the way, if I answered your question, but but I could. You know, you did. You 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 did. I, I guess my main concern is, of course, this is an area I've you know I've I've been a writer for 20 years, and now I've done radio for three years, and it seemed logical that the next thing was, well, you know what? There's a lot of us indie people out there, and let's get real. I can't walk up to Universal Studios and they're going to hand me cash and say, okay, Cindy, we like you. Go do your film. Passion right. brought to right. life by people like us that say, I don't pardon my French because we're on internet. I don't give a shit if you give me money or not. I believe in this and other people believe in it and I'm going to do it whether you like it or not and too bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. obviously there's a bit I of fear and, and granted, yeah, through Sons of Anarchy, I've gotten lucky to where I've gotten introduced to the male side of things and I see so many male bikers and I have great respect for them but the reality is it, Sons of Anarchy really wasn't about the women. It was about the men. A lot of it is male-based and let's get real. Today's society dictates Women are integrating. There are motorcycle groups for women. There are there are women bikers out there, and I want to uh, cast a light on that, um, you know, and that sort of good stuff. That, and of course, I'd like to combine the bikers and the mafia. So we'll try that one too. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Speaking of indeed. which, well, I I know for a fact that that females are the fastest growing segment of the motorcycle motorcycle population, and right. it doesn't surprise me at all. And I think that. Uh, you know, I, I, we have another motorcycle project we've been working on for quite a while. It's a documentary, and uh, we have interviewed a bunch of female motorcyclists. Uh, that's not the that's not the subject of it, but man, these ladies gave us such great interviews and and sure. talking about how for especially young girls to see smart, uh, capable women out there on their own, not on the back of a bike, not riding behind their husband, but you know, or boyfriend or whatever, but honestly doing it their own thing and they don't necessarily have to have the tattoos and the black leather. They can be 
you know, like this one woman we interviewed mm-hmm. zipping around San Francisco going to and from the college where she worked at. And, you know, she stops off at a rest area and these, you know, 12-year-old girls come up going, wow, this is awesome. And the idea that, that you know, there are these little pockets of, of gender inequality that still exist in this country. And the, the more mm-hmm. that those can be erased, the better. And I think that it is very rapidly being erased in the motorcycling world. And I think that, it, you know, the sooner the better. Exactly. I would agree with you. Now, of course, before I forget to ask you this and we, and we move on to the next thing, was that the project? Because I was going to say to you, we just give us a little teaser about that project because you had hinted about working on a new project, but I don't believe that you revealed yet what it was, meaning after the sixth standard. This is, well, this is kind of a, this is, this is actually kind of a new old project in, in this, the status of it is a bit unknown. And I say that because okay. essentially why we ride the film that came out here a couple of years ago, it was a giant success was very similar in concept to what we had been working on. And, okay. there's no, and, and as, as I mentioned, when it comes to what makes a good film, it's like, I don't like to tread the same ground tr- twice, whether it's something someone else has done or something I'm doing. So we're, we're kind of retooling sure. that film. We have just incredible interviews in the can and we have been moving down a, a different road here with Sit Stay Ride but uh, that film um, was tentatively called The Zen of the Ride and it was about sort of the um, the essential qualities of riding a motorcycle regardless of you know who you are and what kind of bike you're on what is this experience that people are having it is almost like a spiritual thing I mean people uh, <laughs> keep themselves emotionally balanced to keep themselves uh, sane in some cases by riding and there's this quality that's almost meditative that you're on this machine you are by anyone's account taking a risk you're out you're exposed and your body is in a in a in a mode where you're very very focused you're not typically sure. if you're if you're riding in a, any kind of you know uh, challenging conditions you're not thinking about the bank account you're not thinking about what the boss said to you right. yesterday you are there in the moment and it kind of has this sort of, you know, positive, meditative sort of, sort of uh, results. And so we've been interviewing people from college professors to hardcore bikers about why do you ride? What what does it give you? That's more than the the cool looks and the fun transportation. So that's a kind of a long a long term thing that we've been working on, and and uh, it's been really great so far. But we're uh, just uh, taking it one step at a time now that we're rolling out to sit say ride. Gotcha. I understand. That's fine. Now, I want to mention that you have been involved in both the conceptualization and construction of movies for um, 20 long years. That's a long time. I didn't even think you were that old, to be honest with you. Judging by your pictures, <laughs> that's all I have. I don't know how old you really are. Um, I want to just highlight a couple of things that you've done, of course. Uh, you've mentioned uh, The Best Bar in America. That was done in 2009. 2008, shooting grunts. 1999, way back, Y2K, Year to Kill. So I have a couple of questions. Um, first off, have you ever produced what the industry would call a proverbial flop, meaning you filmed something, put it in a can, threw it out there, and people are like, that sucks? Oh, yeah. Uh, so the Y2K movie was uh, – I'm 38, by the way. You know, I got started I got started pretty young shooting uh, film when I was you know, 14, 15 years old. But I had an opportunity okay. when I was uh, – you know, in my late teens, early 20s, to direct a feature film that was funded by some guys with some uh, dot-com software money. And we made this film called Y2K, and it was to kind of exploit the fears around Y2K. So it was kind of this little action film about, you know, theoretically things had gone to hell, 
and it was sort of a post-apocalyptic kind of world where you had lawlessness and you had all these people hoarding food and all this bizarre stuff. Anyway, we made this film. I didn't know what I was doing, honestly. I had no idea back then how to construct a feature film and how to shoot a feature film. And, you know, I basically did it all myself with these guys paying the bills. And it it really sucked. I mean, it was just, it was an incredible <laughs> learning experience. I mean, it was better than six years of film school. And it it got an award, worst movie of the year by the Video Critics Association. I mean, it was it was dreadful, and uh, I still have that award on the wall, and it's a good reminder, you know, where you start. But uh, we had a lot of fun making it. I mean, that's the thing you can really uh, you can really delude yourself and a bunch of other people as you're making a film that this is going to be an awesome movie. This is going to be one of the best films ever made. We're going to be at Sundance. This is going to be incredible. And then you start putting it together, and you realize right. the puzzle pieces just don't fit. And oh, that idea I had about such and such—oh, that was that was a bad idea. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so you know, that's how you learn. I mean, that's there's there was an, right. a director, a film director from years ago who said every filmmaker has eight or ten bad films in them. The sooner you get them out, the better. And right. so I don't think I've had quite that many, but it's it was definitely a flop. Um, we did get money for it, a distributor, uh, a low-budget uh, distributor who wanted to get it into uh, video stores before the uh, the Y2K, uh, you know, January 1st happened. And they did. They got it into video stores all across the country. To my horror, I think there were, you know, tens and tens of thousands of copies out there. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it all has vanished. I think it's now a collector's item on Amazon. It's not on DVD. It's only on VHS. I think the last time I checked, Amazon was selling for like 350 bucks. So it's probably more <laughs> money than I ever made making the movie. Hey, it's going on my Christmas list because now I want it. Now I'm curious. I'm like, now i got to see what this is all about. See if it's really like he said oh, yeah. it is. No, it's, That's it. I'm getting it. You know, it, it's it's getting harder and harder to find. Oh, okay. But I got it. I'll have plot. to get on the That's mad hunt. Right. That's the dark okay. you, you dragged it out of me. Yes, and this is what we like to do amongst other things. Now, if we look from, like, let's say, the 1990s onward, for you personally, who do you think are some of the directors that that you have deemed dominant in filmmaking, where you, where you look and say to yourself, I want to be just like this person or this person? Uh, so what, what period of time did you say? I'm sorry. So, like, when you start off, let's say, like, 1990, late 1990s all the way up and through now, maybe some of the individuals that you think just dominate filmmaking where you think, if I was just right there, I want to be just like that. Well, you know, at this point, I don't want to be like anybody. Uh, and I say that because in sure. the 80s, you know, I was obsessed with, uh, you know, the Steven Spielberg movies. I was obsessed with the... Uh, you know, stuff like Back to the Future and Indiana Jones and all that kind of stuff. And, sure. you know, that was really an inspiration to me. You know, this, the story of, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg making these short films and getting a chance to direct uh, for Universal back in the 60s, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And, uh, you know, at that time, I really wanted to do the uh, the Hollywood thing and try to go down and try to become a big film director. And, through advertising jobs, I ended up in L.A. directing some TV commercials in some of the studios and, you know, some decent stuff, you know, in the early 2000s when the dot-com boom was happening. People were spending a lot of money on TV advertising at the time. And, you know, it just turned out not to be my cup of tea. And shooting films, you know, on a very small scale has actually been such a pleasure to me because, 
you know, there's there's red, there's red tape, and I think that that's the, one of the big things with the Y2K movies that when there was money involved, and people, you know, the, the money guys that I was dealing with were actually pretty, pretty you know, pretty cool guys. I mean, they were, uh, you know, they were friends, and it still got super stressful. And so the idea of working with millions and millions of dollars and hundreds of people on a crew, and that level. It's just not something that I'm interested in anymore. And I, that's, you know, I'm talking about making your film or talking about people who want to strike out on their own. It has never been a better time because the technology is there. I mean, without right. a background in cinematography, which used to take literally decades to learn when they were mm-hmm. shooting film, um, you can make a nice-looking film with a, with a very inexpensive camera these days. And, and uh, you know, for my first probably 10, 10 years of, of attempting to make films, the biggest challenge wasn't the creative side. The biggest challenge was getting money to buy film. And I had a friend who was a, an old-time filmmaker who had a bunch of fil- uh, film equipment, uh, professional stuff that he let me use, but I had to buy the film and develop it and transfer it to video. And it, it was a 1000 bucks for every 10 minutes of raw footage. And that was in the early 90s, and I'm working at a radio station making who knows what an hour, not a lot of money. So trying to make a film and just make something that looked even close to professional was really, really hard. You know, video cameras like they are like they have now are just HD didn't exist. It was either crappy home home video, you know, VHS camcorders, or it was the 16 millimeter, right. 35 millimeter cameras. So that was such a giant hurdle and then trying to edit you know I worked nights at a TV station to get access to their editing equipment you know I made all these sacrifices just to try to cover the technical basis of making a film and mm-hmm. now all of that is gone I mean every every Mac every you know every Mac you buy every PC you buy has editing software that's truly professional quality and you know I saw at Costco the other day there's a camera there that's 500 bucks that is the same camera that Sundance films have been, you know, dozens and dozens of films that have run at Sundance. Narrative feature films have been shot on this little $500 Canon uh, digital SLR. So people who want to make films now, I feel, have such a huge opportunity where the technical side is really no longer the issue. It's the creative, and it's just as it always has been, do you have a good story? Do you have a good subject? Do you know how to tell a story with images and, and, you know, make it work and it's a pretty interesting time we live in when it comes to filmmaking and then you have the distribution side of iTunes and Amazon and all of these other places to distribute your film to potentially millions of people online for no cost it's pretty pretty neat well I have to ask this question because this I find this is another thing I like about you <laughs> and the list goes on and on and on um, obviously you had mentioned your movie The Best Bar in Milwaukee or Milwaukee you can tell I'm tired. The, that let's was try a that again. The, Where are you going after this interview? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to a Christmas concert if you want to know, but if you hit me up at 6, I'm probably going to be at the <laughs> bar. Just saying. I know I'm not supposed to say that either, but it's my show. Now, let's try that again. Your film, The Best Bar in America, um, most people may or may not know this, but of course it captured both Best of Fist festival and best feature narrative at the motorcycle film festival this is what i liked about what you had to say i'd read in an interview and i would like you to share with people the comment that you had professed about um your election to submit to that festival why there and not somewhere else there was something particular you had to say and i love this so if you'd share your comments on what you said about that because there's a point to it. well i don't have it in front of me but i think i used some profanity didn't i yes you did and you can feel free to swear <laughs> 
I interview Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> you know, I, 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 can't, I also can't remember what I can't remember what I what I said to be honest. But I think the, you the alluded it was. Yeah. The, the the big the big festivals have kind of lost their way, and there's mm. the, they're sort of you know not necessarily the the place I want to have my film seen at this point. There's a lot of Hollywood BS, and there's a lot of focus on celebrities, and not so much on the art of filmmaking. And you know, it's said that if you get your film into Sundance or Cannes or some of these different festivals, that you're, you got it made. And I happen to know that isn't so. You know, I worked as a professional radio journalist at Sundance for five years in a row as a as a member of the press and interviewed mm-hmm. countless, countless uh, directors and you know actors and all of these folks during the Sundance Film Festival in Park City. And you know, it really gave me a, a sense for you know. You know, the fact that, that, that for filmmakers, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make it. It just doesn't. You know, the, the handful right. of films that are bought every year at Sundance versus the hundreds that are accepted, pretty big difference. You know, they get they get thousands and thousands and thousands of films a year, and they show 150 or 200, and maybe a dozen get, get picked up and put in theaters. And so, right. anyhow, I just think that for, for me, film festivals like... The, New York, the Motorcycle Film Festival in New York or the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in our town of Missoula, Montana. They're festivals where when you go there, you're amongst people who are there for the right reasons. They're there to see movies. They're there to um, support people who are doing work that may never create a paycheck for them. And, you know, it's, just, it's real folks. And there's a lot of, you know, that whole celebrity thing, it is what it is, and that's great. Uh, at at the big big festivals, but I think that for me, smaller festivals where you um, you know it's a little more intimate is, is kind of more my more my style. I think that's a much more diplomatic uh, answer than what I gave to them on on the on, online. But is that basically what you're looking for? Yes, I was looking for exactly that because there's a reason. Let me tell you why. Um, and maybe this is just my opinion. I kind of want you to encapsulate your view on this, too, as far as award committees, things like that. Kurt Sutter has always been infamous about being so pissed off because he never got recognized for these Emmy nominations. It's a very big thing for him that he always gets snubbed. Um, and so I wanted to ask you your take on this as far as do you think that there's an unfair or uh, unfair unbiased, let's say, to certain genres, subject matters, et cetera, meaning, for instance, like Sons of Anarchy is wonderful as a show. I believe firmly that the reason he doesn't get the nods is because even though he believes over-the-top violence is necessary, et cetera, and the storytelling is wonderful, there's just some things politically that a committee is going to say, we're not doing this. Do you know what I'm saying? So I guess maybe address that a little bit. Do you think there's political correctiveness or correctness, I should say, in there? I, I completely think so. And, you know, I guess that when you, when you boil it down, for me, the problem I have are with old guard gatekeepers. And what I mean by that yep. is, Back in the day, there were certain people, whether they were critics, whether they were writers, whether they were the directors of film festivals, heads of movie studios, newspaper publishers, whatever, they got to say what goes. They got to say what went, what became a cultural icon, what became accepted, what became popular. It was very few people. It was very non-democratic. And when you look at the people that decide the Oscars, you look at the people that decide the Emmys in his case, um, you know, these are people who are trying to be cultural filters. They're trying to be people who decide what gets out there and what is recognized as as good as being the, getting the thumbs up from society. Well, it isn't society. That shows incredibly right. popular. And if it were democratic by views, it would be way, way up there. 
But the people who decide those awards are not those are are not the average citizens. And so I have a I have a problem with with the old world of these of these gatekeepers, and whether it be. You know, and I've been a festival judge, you're a festival, film festival judge as well, and, you you know, you try to do the very best you can. But I think in these, you know, really big politically influenced situations like the Emmys, the Oscars, Sundance, whatever, name it. Right. Um, you know, there is an element of the bias of the cultural gatekeepers at work here. And I don't think that people on bikes with tattoos are uh, quite as palatable to them as... as something that's not right you know i agree i agree and it's unfortunate you know because a lot of uh, a lot of things get overlooked i mean nowadays if you don't have the target actor you know the tom hanks of the world or the you know julia roberts right. or whomever you know you're going to get overlooked or sidetracked or etc and, and i do i i miss old hollywood i say this all the time i mean it was glamour and glitz and innocent and simple and do you know what i mean yeah. it just yeah. seemed like it was another era another time that's you know, and um, hopefully with any luck at all, I'll get to my silent film, too. That's another thing, black and white. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask you, too. This is a personal side note. We gravitate a lot on this show. My kids, that's right. huge. They're huge into Charlie Chaplin. Any good suggestion where I can get stuff? I mean, they're, like, totally into this guy, and I love it. I'm digging it. I'm like, he's awesome. I love him. If I wanted to get old, backdated kind of stuff, you know, movies, merchandise, any good suggestions? Well, you know, uh I love silent films, and I think the key to watching silent films or or introducing uh, younger people to silent films and that type of stuff is to get new remastered editions like, uh, you know, Turner Classic Movies, TCM. Yeah. They have mm-hmm. gone through and cleaned up these films so they look as they did when they were when they were made. And the thing about silent films is that they weren't originally scratchy and super fast motion. You know, there was a, an element of that for comedy, but... Like in the dramas, nothing was sped up. It was normal. It was normal speed, and it wasn't full of scratches and flickers. So they've come back and they clean these up, so they're gorgeous. You get a real sense of how masterful the cinematography was and the set design and all of that. So, you know, Turner Classic Movies, I happen to know, has a website with a whole bunch of um, remastered uh, silent films. The Criterion Collection is another um, source for DVDs um, and Blu-rays that that are. Uh, remastered, you know. As far as that goes, um, you know, that's that's probably my my top suggestion. But I know that okay. years ago, when I was t- when I was teaching film class at a university, um, some of the students just couldn't believe what I was showing them was a silent film because it was so it was so beautiful and it wasn't that you know tinny piano and super fast flickery scratchy black and white film, you know. Mm-hmm. I know exactly. Thank you so much because, like and I said, I keep asking people and they're like, yeah. If you can oh, find agree. anyone who is screening it in a theater, that is just the best. With live, with, you know, you occasionally find I it, know. you know, where a live symphony plays the score. I mean, that is just right. That is exactly. Cool. Oh no, I agree with you, and I and I think that it would be awesome. I'm trying to work on finding his living relatives, anybody that's left over alive or whatever have you. Because I mean, for me, my kids don't listen to my shows. I mean, they have no interest in who you are. They could care less. I could be like, oh yeah, mommy talked to a guy today who does, you know, motorcycle movies and he has a dog in it. He'd be like, really cool. He'd be like, what's the dog? Nothing about Eric. Who cares about that guy? Just tell me this. So I wanted to do a show, you know, for them. So I'm like, you know, I tried to get Robert Downey Jr. because they want Iron Man. I'm like, yeah, good luck at an Iron Man, man. I can't, I mean, I can't even get close right, to people right, like that. Right. I've tried, you know what I mean? It's just there's a lot of crap sure. publicists and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, so sure, I'm like, sure. yeah, if I could try to find a chaplain relative, we're going to work on that. So we'll see. 
Now, I want to go back to, of course, talking to your mainstay or, or the, the, the big thing, of course, which is uh, Sit, Stay, Ride, the story of America's sidecar dogs. Now, on your website, um, it plainly states that 100% is going to go from your local screenings and 25% of DVD sales shall be utilized for Canine Rescue, um, which I think is absolutely – I mean, I commend such selflessness and admire you for just on that merit alone, actually. Um, I also note that I saw that, as I understand it, any animal welfare agency can obtain a copy to screen. So if anybody listening happens to know of anyone or would want to um, do that, what would they need to do? What's the process involved with having that happen or making it happen? So, so there's a couple ways to go. You're absolutely right that if any uh, animal welfare organization, any as long as it's a nonprofit organization, anywhere mm-hmm. in the country can screen our film for uh, as a benefit. So you maybe find your local movie theater or your uh, local cine, you know, cineplex, and you promote the event. You sell tickets and use that, use those funds to help support the organization. We'll provide the film for free, and uh, we will um, donate all the proceeds that we would normally normally get to the organization. And so, if folks want to screen it in in like a really high end theater, you know, your your Cinemark or your Regal Cinemas or your AMC's, uh, we can do that. Um, but there's a we have a distribution partner called Tug that helps us with the technical side. There's all these special digital prints and things that you need to do. So if you go to sidecardogs.com, our website, and you click on host a screening, it will give you the option to start working with Tug, and they have this cool mechanism where you can sell tickets online and you can they handle basically everything. It's a it's a very very cool service, and but that does require you to screen it at a a regular movie theater, and you know the film's in okay. surround sound. It's a widescreen, you know, widescreen uh, cinemascope film, so it'll look great and sound great in that theater. But a lot of folks want to screen it at their local little, you know, small town theater, or maybe not a theater at all. Maybe at, uh, at the animal rescue organization, and and that's fine. But Tug it doesn't do that. So what we what we do then is send you a Blu-ray DVD, a Blu-ray disc. It's high def. You can and arrange for a, a projector and sound system on your own and, and kind of handle that side of it and then go from there. And we provide poster art and help with media if if uh, that's helpful. And we just go from there. And uh, so it's basically a, you know, have Tug sort of handle the technical side and, and the procedural side and or, or do it yourself. Either way, we can make that work. And there are contact links and uh, information about those screenings at sidecardocs.com. Gotcha. And, of course, on the flip side, I wanted to mention this, too, which I think is even neater, that individuals can actually do a local screening themselves. So maybe just talk to us a little bit about um, is that real time consuming and how creative do you need to get in terms of pulling that off? So with uh, with Tug, now, and it's true, that's a good point, you don't have to be an animal welfare, animal rescue organization to do this. If you... You know, like sidecars or like dogs, you want to you want to create a screening so you can see it in a theater in your town. Mm-hmm. It's basically the same process. You go to sidecardocs.com, click host a screening, and then you go on to Tug's website. And basically, the the way it works is you say, I want to create a screening in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and you you it'll suggest some theaters. You choose the theater that you'd like. They have partnerships with all of these different theater chains. Let's say you choose the AMC 15 up the up the way, and you choose a date, and then you're responsible then to get the word out about the screening. And usually okay. they will set a, a minimum threshold of tickets that you have to actually sell through your social media contacts. You can you can buy them all yourself if you want to, but typically you'll send it out <laughs> to your friends at the motorcycle club, 
He said, hey, guys, okay. I need to sell 30 tickets in order to make this film screen here. And if you don't, it's no problem. It doesn't cost you anything. But if you hit this minimum of 30, then the data set and the film is going to be there. It's kind of this, almost like a crowdsourcing way to get screenings into into any community. Sure. And, uh, you know, usually I think the tickets are 10 bucks or something like that. It varies, you know, area to area, but it's it's all very reasonable and very, very cool. And so then, you know, if you... Um, you can sell more than that. That's great. And uh, then a percentage of that, um, of those ticket sales actually goes to the person who organizes it. And then a percentage goes to Tug and a percentage comes to us. But, uh, you know, if you want to host a screening, let's say at a, at, a, at a biker rally or something of that nature that's not in a theatrical setting, just shoot us an email and we'll, we'll figure it out. No problem at all. Interesting you should mention that. Now, um, just to let individuals know that are listening right now, um, has the film come out yet or it's about to come out yet, just so that we know? Film, the film is now available. So if you want okay. it on DVD or Blu-ray or digital download, you can go to our website and, and make that happen. Um, and, again, 25% of the, uh, of the gross goes to uh, animal rescue organizations that are chosen by our Facebook fans. So we, every quarter put out a poll uh, so folks can vote on who those uh, who those funds ought to go to. So it's pretty it's a pretty cool thing. And, uh, you know, so many folks picked the DVD up recently for Christmas presents. There's T-shirts and patches and other stuff that, that motorcyclists tend to like. And, um, you know, it's been great to connect with all these with all these people who are, are excited about what we're doing. You know, again, it's a niche within a niche. So when people who happen to have a sidecar or a uh, uh, sidecar and a dog find out about the film. It's been pretty. It's been pretty gratifying to hear from them saying, "I can't believe somebody's made a film about this. This is crazy." <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. It's been really I don't. Fun. People have been very, very positive about it. Gotcha. I have a question for you, or I should say I should make a comment about this. I'll make one more comment, and then I'll make another question. Um, I want to remind everybody, of course, that they, you also, on your website, of course, in addition to the movie, have T-shirts and patches on there, motorcycle patches and T-shirts. So those are available on there. I wanted to make a point about saying that um, as far as that goes on the website. You can check all that out at www.sidecardogs.com. Um, I also want to cover one big area of ground. This is the last ground we have to cover, actually. Can you believe this has gone by in an hour? I mean, this is crazy. Really I mean, it just went so fast. I know. Well, it's because you're a great guest. You're, you have all these really good well, answers. And I, yeah, this is absolutely awesome. Um, so just when we all thought that filmmaking took every part of your of your time, et cetera, there's more. And I'm excited to, to report on this. This is the last thing I wanted to cover because I'm like, people probably identify you most as being a filmmaker. But you and I both carry some of the same uh, job titles or career titles, I should say, in that we um, – talk show host, broadcast journalist. Um, also, you've done cinematography and video, video work. Um, I just want you to uh, to ask a couple questions relative to that. Have you ever wished that you just dropped your director cap and at, at some point in time went back to just shooting commercials or doing simpler sorts of things, or is this kind of like your niche now? You know, um, that's the thing is I, I – I do still do commercials from time to time. We do documentaries for clients who need, you know, nonprofit organizations that need to raise money or what have you. You know, this uh, the filmmaking thing is our primary focus this year time-wise, but we tend to sort of oscillate back and forth. You will spend a year working with clients and, you know, essentially with the goal of, you know, building up the bank account, and then we'll, you know, figure, all right, this is a good, you know, we have a lull in client work, and we've got some got some funds in the bank, let's make another film. And, you know, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, but it, it really does seem to work, because filmmaking, 
um, the sort of level we've been at this year making this film is, you know, it's it's a lot of work. It really is. And, you know, especially when you're trying to deal with just a couple of folks. And Kickstarter was hugely important to us to make sure we could actually travel and have a good score for the film. But there's just many, many hundreds and hundreds of hours of work to kind of get it done. So at this point, sure. that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm sort of setting the director's cap down and going back to some client work. And honestly, cool. as far as the kind of work I've done in the past that I think about more than anything is radio. I got into radio as just an a absolute shot in the dark when I was 14 years old. I was in a little small town in eastern Washington, and my dad's friend was the program director, and they needed somebody to play oldies after you know, after I got out of school from 3 to 5, Monday through Friday. And I did that for six months and just fell in love with radio. And that led to jobs as a disc jockey for a few years. And then I got into news radio and then into TV. And it led to a lot of the things that I do now. And I did broadcast for NPR for a period of time for uh, in the early 2000s, um, around the time of the Olympics. And then uh, after that, you know, during Sundance, et cetera. And I loved radio. I really did. It was just such a cool Yay. medium. And especially sort of the Thank public you. radio sort of, audio storytelling kind of medium I think about that a lot and there's you know the kind of work you're doing you know uh, again technology has really allowed for some pretty awesome stuff and reach a lot of people outside of normal radio station type uh, environments and I love that kind of thing I love I love what you're doing so maybe there's a a spot down the road where that'll happen for me I don't know but uh, it definitely is nice for me to have a variety of things that uh, are avenues for or creativity and avenues for, for doing things that, you know, could possibly raise the bar in some way for for folks or for rescue docs or whatever, you know. You betcha. Have you, I know, I wanted to ask this, on the broadcast side of things, meaning when you're on the radio, et cetera, were you allotted, because not everybody who, I think people are so used to the regular broadcast medium, which is back in the day you get censored, you can't talk about this, this. Were you allotted more free expression when you were on there? Like, for instance, with me, Internet, I can swear, I can do what I want, I can have who I please. Did you have that sort of same freedom while doing that? No. You know, in the early 90s, um, you still had, until 1996, you still had to have a a license to broadcast on the radio. You had a third-class radio telecommunications uh, license, which made it feel pretty special to be on the radio. You had to apply, and the FCC gave you this license. And then the 1996 deregulation of the you know the telecommunications act changed things a little bit but as far as language uh with radio i mean it they always just drove it into our our heads that if you slip up you can be fined many tens of thousands of dollars and and it was true but it was it was something that was pretty much verboten for us to even think about doing when i was doing a a, a daily two-hour talk show on a public radio affiliate uh, we had great latitude with the kind of subject matter we covered. You know, we, we did some pretty wild stuff, pretty fun stuff that you wouldn't normally hear on public radio, and I loved that. I had a producer named Lola who helped uh, schedule guests, and, you know, it's, as you know, it's neat to be able to call people up and say, hey, I've got a time slot for you. What do you think? And people of, of note, you know, celebrities and politicians, etc., typically are, are you know, a lot of times for it, you know, and, and sometimes you have to wrangle them. Sometimes they don't want to do it, but having right. access that way is really cool. And to, to have conversations with people, uh, interesting people is something I really enjoy doing. But as far as restrictions, you know, it was always broadcast media over the air and the FCC was always, apparently always listening and watching for uh, violations of the, of the of the laws, you know. Oh, you betcha. You are right there. 
Well, before I forget, a couple quick things on the business side of things here. Before I forget now, Sit, Stay, Ride, the story of America's sidecar dogs. I wanted to reiterate www.sidecardogs.com. Also, if you want to find Best Bar in America, www.bestbarinamerica.com. There's also that fine little project, www.jupiterlanding.com. And then for your movie, you have a Facebook page, which is, of course, Sit, Stay, Ride, the story of America's sidecar dogs. Also, um, the page that's on there, that personal page, that is your page. Is that correct? So people can friend you? Because I tried to friend you, but I'm not your friend. So I don't know if that was you or if it's just not your page. I don't know. Do you have a personal page there? On Facebook? Yeah. Uh, you know, I do. I, I'm not on it very often, to be honest. I know that's the I thing, but I, I, don't know what, I don't know what my privacy settings are at this point, so I, I should probably check into that's that. Okay. I'm, I'm not 100% yeah. sure, to be honest with you. And I do you want to insert you. the fact that Jupiter Landing is not my film. Uh, that was a, uh, a Stacey oh. Demolsky production. Yeah. I was the cinematographer on that yeah, many that's years right. ago. I should have known that. You're absolutely right. Um, you can also find your products on Amazon and YouTube. Any place else people that can, can find you? Uh, well, uh, a particular bar on a particular street corner in Missoula, Montana, a couple of <laughs> couple of nights a month. But besides that, I think you pretty much covered the base. Absolutely uh, wonderful. Now, before I forget, I got to do two more things before I let you go. Actually, three. First and foremost, I always have to say to the boss herself, which is Dana Humphrey. I know that she's going to listen to this interview, even though she's not listening right now. So this is from me to you, Dana. Eric, which you'll get to Dana. find out in my Appreciate last. It. I was just going to say. We're both thanking you, but more importantly, Dana, because I didn't get a chance to send you your Christmas card. I'm saying Merry Christmas. I'm telling you that I miss you very much. I can't wait to see you in January because I am coming to New York City in January. But moreover, um, thank you, Dana, for the gift of you because not only are you a wonderful publicist, but you really are a wonderful friend. So thank you so much. Um, as far as Eric, I have two things to say to you. First and foremost, I want to throw this proposition out there because I thought about this when I wrote your interview today. And if you like this idea, we can talk about this off the air sometime, which is I thought about us combining four meaning that if you were willing to do your screening someplace, somewhere, let's say, I would come there, I'll do a live interview there with you, uh, and then you could screen your movie. And then afterwards, um, uh, I combine book signings because I, I have my latest book, which is, of course, my radio <laughs> show guest. So I interview people live. I do a book signing, or in this case, we could do a live interview. I would do my little book signing. You screen the film, and then all of my profits, I would be willing to donate back towards the cause of Canine Rescue. So oh, that is over. a very, very cool offer. Yeah, we'll definitely have to yeah. talk about that. That sounds like a blast. Definitely. To me. We and, can do uh, that like we're that. always we'll... always up for fun stuff like that. Well, and you're in Montana. You're not like in, you know, London like where some people want me to go. So I'm just like, okay, fine. So I, I wanted to throw that out on the table. And the very last thing that I do on my show, because if I don't get off of here in five minutes, people are gonna kick my ass. I gotta get to a concert. <laughs> and I dyed my hair while I did this show, believe it or not. This is a first. I actually dyed my what? hair while doing my show. It's been up the whole time. It's just drying. But I'm like, I dyed my hair right before I came on air. So I'm like, yeah, this is the life of a radio person. I'm running This takes multitasking to a new level. What can I say? There you go. And I'm your show of all things. So I want to finish off with the same way that I, that I finish off every show, which is I take about two or three minutes to tell you what I think of you. So this is the part where you're quiet, and then I just tell you what I think of you. And then after okay. that, you are free to go, unfortunately. Okay, well, you shouldn't be nervous. Actually, I, I get these responses when I get done, so we'll see what you think. So this is what I have to say about Eric. The very first time I opened up Facebook to try researching him, I'm like, shit, he's not my Facebook friend, so now I can't see all this stuff, so I had to get creative. My first impressions of you are this. 
I'm like, the guy in the profile picture is cute. So I'm like, there's a first impression. The guy's, you know, a good-looking guy. Second of all, I go and I research him, and I come to find out he has the same passion and purpose that I do. He has a succinct goal, which is to go out and to take his product to the masses, and it's a likable and recognizable product. It's, it's in a different format, mind you, meaning, of course, this gentleman is making a movie about motorcycles with sidecars, and how many times do you see that? That's the uniqueness to it. You're willing to go outside of the box to bring popularity to something that people don't always recognize. You're people-friendly. You're very intelligent. You're very versatile. You're willing to get behind the camera, in front of the camera. You're willing to do any little thing that gets you one set closer, or one second closer, I should say, to a film. And I find that admirable. I like the fact that you're ballsy, the fact that you're willing to say, you know what, I don't want to be in every single pretentious film festival because, you know what, it's a bunch of bullshit. Um, and I'm using my word, not yours, uh, so don't misquote me. Uh, in terms, or don't misunderstand what I mean. I should say, I, I have a great deal of respect for what you do because you've been doing it for 20 years. I respect the fact that you have worked with your life partner and the fact that you have a happy household because you may not have millions of dollars, but you've succeeded to do what you truly believe in. And not to mention the fact you're helping and rescuing animals, which I think is absorbently wonderful. I would love to support you in future endeavors. I would love to meet you face-to-face to shake your hand and to tell you that I think you're remarkable. That's what I think of you, Mr. Eric, although it wasn't eloquently well, Cindy, good. Cindy, that was very kind. I really appreciate that. It's been a real pleasure very to be true. on the show, and, uh, oh, and I appreciate you, you taking, the entire, taking the entire hour to visit with me. This is a very unusual opportunity uh, to, to have more than, you know, five to ten minutes, and, uh, and I really do appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun for me. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, thank you so very much. And like I said, do get a hold of me after the show. We'll chit-chat about getting an event together. I'm sure Dana could help uh, facilitate if necessary. Um, and I'll let you go because I have to get beautiful and I have to get the hell out of here. But anytime you want to come back, Eric, you're more than welcome back on the show anytime. Thank you so much, Cindy. Have a great one. And All right, dear. Yeah. You too. Thank you. Thanks. All right, folks, that was my exclusive interview with Eric. And forgive me again if I didn't get the name right, Risto. Uh, one more time, www.sidecardogs.com, www.bestbarinamerica.com. He has a Facebook page for personal, which is Eric W-R-I-S-T-A-U is the last name. And he also has one for his movie page for Sidecar Dogs. And his work can also be found on Amazon and YouTube. Once again, one more big holler out to Dana Humphrey for the interview. Absolutely wonderful as always. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week. You have yourselves a great weekend. And thanks.